welcome to our 34th Set the Month in Motion monthly podcast and forum produced in partnership with the City of Fremantle's Building Business Capacity Program. My name is Denisha Quinlan and I'm the CEO here at the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce. I would like to start today by acknowledging traditional owners on the land on which we gather, the Wadjuk people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Well, as we step our toes into the new world of COVID restrictions easing over this week, the one thing still on everyone's lips is, will supply chain get any better? Supply chain logistics can be complicated at the best of times, but at the moment they are having such significant impact on all of our businesses, none more so than the food and beverage producers and our property and construction sector members. The Australian Institute of Company Directors recently reported that supply chain issues were one of the biggest red flags in recent mid-year company reporting. A number of our national leaders in business were reporting a drop in profits after incurring additional costs and experienced stock shortages as a result of ongoing global supply chain disruptions, elevated staff absenteeism and delays with third-party logistic providers. Our own Vice President here at the Chamber, a Director of Yoke Property and Chair of our Development and Infrastructure Committee, was interviewed on ABC Radio last week discussing the magnitude of this issue, noting the many millions of dollars in property development held up simply in supply chain and labour restrictions. In addition, companies are reporting flow-on effects to a lack of supply of warehousing as companies move away from just-in-time inventory to reducing risks and finding alternatives. In some cases, we've even heard of hiring furniture removal companies to move stock or get products to them. And by all reports, this problem isn't going away anytime soon, with many exports, expect, <laughs> experts and exporters <gasps> expecting labour shortages and supply chain issues to continue well into the second half of the next financial year and even to the end of 2023. Today on our panel, we are so lucky and very, very fortunate to have three experts who are at the front line of helping businesses navigate their way through this minefield. And to my left is Daryl Daisley, Director of Customs and International Trade at Pitcher Partners. Daryl has over 35 years experience in customs and international trade, having spent 13 years with the Australian Customs Service, 13 years with PwC, and six years as a principal of Axiom PTY LTD. You joined Director at Pitcher Partners in January 2018, and you've managed complex customs, international trade, fuel trade issues for numerous mining, resource processing infrastructure companies. You continually support import-export companies to manage cross-border trade issues, including import duty reduction and ABF compliance issues. In an ever-changing world, you have such a unique experience having worked for the federal government, your own boutique practice, and for a number of professional service firms. And Daryl, I recall we were just talking earlier, it was only two and a half, nearly three years ago that we listened to Cassandra from AFA talking about the fact that global supply chain issues may be a factor and that we'd see some sovereignty issues come through over the next year or so. And by goodness, she was right, wasn't she? Absolutely. You've been in the industry a long time and I'm really interested to see your own take on how you see this complex issue playing out at the moment and just the impacts that you're seeing with the businesses that you're dealing with daily. Set the scene for us, Daryl. Set the scene, where to start? Um, I guess my 35 years in um, international trade, whether being a customs officer through to a, a consultant in trade matters, um, you know, the last three to five years have been um, full of turmoil, mm -hmm. um, whether it be uh, the, the Trump administration um, throwing caution of the wind around trade relationships, um, through to COVID, through to black swan events, uh, with you know the blockages of the Suez Canal mm. um, to our relationship with China, I think my biggest takeaway over the last couple of years is um, if consultants have trouble to keep up, um, then businesses must be uh, you know close to drowning. And some of these issues are geopolitical issues, mm. which are impacting trade relationships. Um, and, and the classic would be, <coughs> excuse me, our relationship with China. Yeah. You know, we've currently got 14 industries that have been directly impacted by uh, trade with China. And overnight, right in the middle, I mean, that January for our seafood and marine exporters yep. just hit out of nowhere, didn't yep, they? No, exactly. And some of those matters aren't related to the imposition of import tariffs. Mm. You know, so it's, it's, it's a troubling world. And if you're an importer um, or an exporter, um, you know, I think the takeaway from this morning would be reach out and get as much advice and assistance Mm -hmm. in advance, 
in relation to, you know, what you want to undertake in relation to those cross-border transactions. Mm, absolutely. And one of the things we found with so much of this is relationship-driven. We're not just dealing with the logistics of physically tracking your ship across the globe, are we? I think that's been one of the, the key takeouts is for many of our exporters, it's almost been when China hit, picking up the phone and suddenly ringing people you haven't spoken. We likened it to, you know, ringing up your year 12 girlfriend and going, hey, I haven't spoken to you for a while, but, you know, <laughs> do you want to take my goods now? It's sort of been at yeah, that look, point, hasn't it? It, it is. And, and interesting, uh, interestingly, I guess, you know, my take on it is government to government, you know, significant um, relationship issues. Mm. But business to business, I mean, we are still trading heavily with China, you know, and that gets down to relationships between, you know, an exporter and a Chinese buyer. You know, those relationships are still there. The trade is still happening, but now it's it's underscored through, you know, logistical challenges um, outside of that relationship mm. in, in some respects. Um, and persistence, isn't it? You know, it's finding new routes, it's picking up the phone, it's actually working 10 times harder than most of our exporters and importers have done traditionally to keep those relationships going. Yeah, ab absolutely. And then, you know, um, with that, normally, you know, if you had a trouble with a relationship, you'd, you'd get together and go out. Yeah. Well, with COVID and the borders being shut, you know, there's, there's, you can't just jump on a plane and go and sit down with your Chinese distributor. You know, that, that couldn't happen for the last two years. Mm -hmm. um, and Zoom calls, you know, are, are a poor cousin of actually meeting face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's been challenging for, for those exporters um, or even importers, you know, that, where you may want to get a buyer down to Australia to look at your orchard, to yeah. look at your manufacturing facility. Mm. Um, so those, you know, those are significant challenges, which, so people have had to be very, very flexible. Yeah. Um, but I think everyone wants to try and get back to, you know, not pre-COVID, but, you know, back to some sense of being able to have that human interaction to underscore, you know, that, that cross-border trade. Absolutely. And one of the issues I'd like to cover with the panel a little later is also from a export point of view it's those relationships with your your buyers and understanding what your product is and that face-to-face -face engagement but likewise if you're needing to shift your supply chain around to import it raises a whole lot of other issues around potentially getting products and packaging from businesses you haven't met before you haven't seen their own factories you haven't seen how their ethical processes work and all of those things so it is a little bit of a fly by the seat of your pants at the moment and try and just get the stock in and maybe some of those other issues are going to come back to bite us over the next little while as well yeah certainly and that's where i think you know the last couple of years it's been shown that the just-in-time model um, when we had significant, and we still have significant supply constraints, um, it's just very difficult to maintain that mm. just-in-time model. Yeah. You know, um, and all of us individually, whenever we've gone shopping, um, you know, if you're into cycling, um, you know, there's numerous reports through the ABC around cycling shops not being able to get spare parts. Yeah. You know, because solely they relied on Chinese suppliers. Mm. You know, and a lot of them now have had to look at potentially other supply avenues, you know, yeah. to fulfil that that need for that stock for consumers within Australia. And that doesn't happen overnight. No, I think, and we'll definitely deep dive into some of those issues in the next little while. That's a great oversight, Dale, and I really appreciate um, your insight. Next on our panel, I might get you to pass the mic over to Karen um, Winnings, who is a senior marine surveyor at Crawford and Company, um, and also Worcester, Australia's vice president. Um, Karen is um, part of the world's largest listed, publicly listed independent provider of global complaint management solutions. So very much at the pointy end of risk and managing risk in this industry. Um, you predominantly work in marine and cargo liability investigation and claim adjustment, as well as recreational vessel incidents. You're passionate about the future of the maritime industry and are regularly involved in international maritime law arbitration moot competitions. Um, Karen is also a member of the Maritime Law Association of Australia and New Zealand, which you have been for over 10 years. Um, Karen joined Worcester, for those not aware of Worcester, it's Women in Shipping and Trade Association in 2019 and have been the Australian Vice President since 2020. Karen uses her role at Worcester to share knowledge and experience with colleagues and industry participants and we're very grateful that you're here today, Karen, to share your knowledge with us. Karen, our vulnerabilities, as Daryl's highlighted, also come from the fact that we are an island nation um, with around 98% of trade and most jobs connected to sea freight in some way or form. 
and they're certainly being very exposed at the moment. Um, what are you seeing from a risk perspective and what would, advice would you give companies trying to manage these risks? So obviously Daryl's talked a lot already about like exporters. Yeah. So people trying to send goods out of Australia. I'm heavily sort of involved in the opposite. So we deal a lot with imported cargo and we're seeing, I'm seeing very much just a, a sort of a fly by the seat of your pants mentality. So I'm so desperate to get my goods that I'll go anywhere and pay you know, anything take, just take short well it's more about um taking shortcuts so not okay. you know I've had several um importers like get stuff from China or from India or, and 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 just not doing enough before they're bringing the goods in so to not check the due out diligence the manufacturer yeah and yeah just a real lack of due diligence um checking out the manufacturer looking at packing and packing you know, we're not talking about stuff that's just come about with COVID. This has been an ongoing issue for, you know, pretty much the whole time I've been doing my job. Mm. And it's people thinking that, like, container shipping is relatively risk-free. Well, I can tell you now that if you see a picture of a container on a gantry crane in strong winds doing this and you've got, uh, you know, it's carrying like a – I had a um, telehandler. So no lashing inside the container. It's a wheeled, you know, piece of machinery. Well, if you've got a container doing this on a gantry crane, uh, so is your telehandler. Mm. And so it's just a real lack of awareness of container shipping, you know, atmospheric conditions. I see it a lot with, and um, I, I've banged a pretty loud drum over the last couple of years on cargo sweat and how mm. that affects um you know, uh, uh, food and, and beverages and other commodities and people aren't thinking about it. And even I imagine that temp one of the things we hear also from our exporters as well as our importers is because containers have been so hard to get and space on containers has been so hard to get. People are putting things into containers and sharing containers and not necessarily being able to have that optimal I guess, temperature control or optimal solution because they're just wanting the space. On the LCL containers. containers are my demon. <laughs> and I tell people, you know, they'll, they'll say, that was crated and everything and I don't expect it to be damaged. And I'm like, did you ship at LCL? Yes, I shipped at LCL. I said, well, 99 times out of 100, an LCL container is going to damage your stuff. You Can are better off. Can you just off. explain for those so listening yeah, so what LCL it's is? It's less than container loads. So it's exactly yeah. as you described, people sort of co-loading um, containers. So where you might only have two or three items, they'll go into a container with other people's goods, um, a little bit like overseas removals where they might, you know, take stuff from and, and package your goods with others. Mm. And so inevitably that is also going to be transshipped along the way, especially if it's coming out from locations like Europe. So it'll come into Singapore, they'll unpack it from one container then it'll get booked into another container for service to Australia. And so you've got, you know, goods can be handled four, five, mm. six times um, in the supply chain before you actually get them. Mm. And in those instances, damage to me is, is 99 times out of 100 inevitable. Yeah. And so I will often say to people, do you know what, it's better to spend an extra three or $4,000 and put your stuff in a container that's properly braced and that's not being carried with other stuff, mm. then you losing a million dollars worth of equipment. And it's understanding those risks, isn't yes. it? Because on the other side of that coin, some of our food producers and exporters wouldn't have been able to get product to market unless less than a container load actually came in because it gave them an opportunity to actually get stuff out. So I guess a big part of that story is that the risk can come from anywhere. It can come from those relationships, as Daryl said. It can come from the, the nature and the way that you're sending stuff. And it can also just come from the transportation physically in itself and goods arriving not perhaps in the condition because you've taken those shortcuts that you do. And it's, it's this, the, there's, a really simple solution and that is spending a thousand dollars on a surveyor before the you know when your stuff is getting packaged for them to sign off on it being packaged properly to withstand you know we're aware of every possible risk that can happen mm. in the supply chain and making sure you're taking those preparatory steps spending that money will allow you to bring your goods in make your money on the other end 
to me it's mm. it's a no-brainer but to a lot of other people it's and um, I guess it's that cost thing and I, we're definitely yes. going to be caught talking about that a little later on in in terms of how we manage those impacts on on businesses and whether it's short-term long-term or you know otherwise because the person that wears that at the end of the day is often the consumer because it is reflected in price I'm very interested to hear from Amanda, who's third on our panel and absolutely at the front line of, um, of managing these issues. Amanda Bradfield is Operations Manager for EES Shipping. Uh, EES Shipping is a long-standing Chamber member and one of Australia's major international freight forwarders and plays an extensive role in the promotion and development of overseas markets for Australian manufacturers and suppliers. Operations Manager Amanda has been working in the industry for over 25 years with EES. Shipping, which is based down in Coburn, um, we were very fortunate to also have Brian um, join us for a fantastic conversation on getting craft beer to market not long ago. Um, and if anyone's interested in that, that um, podcast is still on our website and really well worth a listen. And Amanda, welcome today. It's lovely to have you with Thank us. Thank you for having me. Um, Look, so many issues we could talk about with what you're seeing. I'm going to There's start with the very first one, which is what we're hearing um, along the lines is that there's not only considerable delays in booking shipping and containers in general, um, but what we're finding is there's almost a, an auctioning of going to the highest bidder. Um, costs are said to be doubling and tripling normal container costs. Um, what are you seeing and, and how are you helping your clients navigate this minefield where suddenly it's become a free-for-all and the first in or the highest <laughs> payer is actually the one getting the space on the container? Yeah, that's right. So, look, we've seen over the last few years this has just been increasing, you know, with the demand in freight, demanding goods for consumers, consumers not moving around, not going on holidays, they're staying at home and buying things and renovating their houses um, and, you know, obviously with that becomes the surge in, in cargo moving around. So I did some figures this morning just to have it for you. So in 2020, the price for a 40-foot container coming out of Shanghai into Fremantle sat roughly around about 1500 US dollars. That's just for the freight. So we saw in 2021, obviously, the Suez Canal issue came up. There's been a few lockdowns in China. Uh, surge, the demand did not go down at all. So late 2021, you're looking at about 8500 US um, and now we're well into the over $10,000 for a 40-foot for a container, mm. just the US dollar freight rate just out of Shanghai into Fremantle. So the price has doubled, tripled and gone beyond that. Um, at the moment, there's some lockdowns happening in China. I think everyone might be aware of that. Mm. We're actually seeing the prices have actually softened slightly. Okay. Um, but all indications are pointing to the fact that they will never be as low as what they were mm. again, again. So this is where we have to start adjusting how we're dealing with it within the market. We're trying to educate the clients because a lot of the time the clients did try and actually hold on to their prices that they were giving out to their you know, their buyers. It's not going to work forever. There's only so long that you can chew into your profits when the when the freight rates are increasing. And it's not only freight rates, it's also the local landside charges. The terminals are charging more. The transport operators are charging more. Everyone along the supply chain has, um, you know, has had to charge more for their costs going up mm. also. Yes. The arbitrary yes. charges. Yes. yes. <laughs> There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that going on. So how we're helping our clients is, is just trying to navigate them in the best way. So you talk about the just-in-time model. So we know that we're now working on the just-in-case model, um, pushing clients to make sure that their inventory stock is kept at a level where they're not going to cause too much of a problem if a ship's delayed by one or two weeks, which is the common occurrence at the moment. Um, your vessel schedules are off at least, uh, I think it's 7.3 days. Uh, they're, they're completely off window now, which is causing obviously a knock-on effect to the other issues that we're seeing as well. So education is where, where yeah. we're looking at clients. It's, it's educating the clients on the issues that we're having in the supply chain because they're not going away anytime soon. And so many people I don't think are, are aware of just that, for example, a delay in packaging if you're a food producer means that you've bought all your food stock, it's ready to go onto production, but you've got nothing to put it in exactly. at the end. So those flow on and that planning of those mm -hmm. old models where you could rely yeah. on produce and packaging arriving at the time you actually needed yeah. it is just really gone, isn't it? Yeah, we're finding that the clients that are holding the inventory, so this is what I'm talking import-wise, um, the clients that are actually keeping more stock are finding that they're the king because their competitors have not, gone on the just-in-case model, they're, they're working on just-in-time and they're fully delayed. Mm. So people are then knocking on their doors, asking them for products. So it's happening a lot in different industries. 
And I imagine it's also having a flow on, and Daryl, I'd be interested in your perspective on this as well, um, a flow on in terms of how um, goods are, I guess, priced at one end, but also in terms of just managing your own business through this process, because it must have a a business-wide effect when you're having to go to another model where you're suddenly getting warehousing, you're suddenly trying to put stock somewhere, you've got a whole new addition to the supply logistics. Is that something that you're seeing with your clients? Um, definitely. I mean, we, uh, if I harp back to March 2020 when COVID we first hit Australia, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, we kind of tried to crystal ball um, gaze what was going to happen over the next 6, 9, 12, mm. 18 months. And I actually reread that article only a couple of weeks ago and it was a bit scary because in, in essence we were saying, um, you know, just in time's going to go, just in case needs to be seriously considered um, and it does today. But I, I think the interesting thing is, um, you know, if I harp back to January had, you know, a certain look. We're now into May. It's got a different look. It's, wor it's slightly worse. Mm. Um, what is it going to be in September? What is it going to be in December? So if you were so fixed in your business thinking and, and strategy in January, by May, it's out of date. Mm. You know, so if you were thinking, right, I, I've got a, a retail business where, you know, I make all my money around Christmas, I normally get my stock in, you know, October, you know, it might be warehouse for a month and then it's on the shelf, you know, end of November for the sales in December. Um, you know, we've been saying to numerous businesses, you should, be, you should have been ordering we're in May now, you know, a couple of months ago and you might need to get it in in July, August and you've got to warehouse it for a couple of months. Um, but as, as Amanda's saying, I mean, you'll then be a potential seller of products mm -hmm. come the busy period because you've managed to strategize early and be really transparent, really flexible, um, but that may, you know, require some additional funding yeah. for your business, you know, because warehousing um, is, is a problem as well. Yeah, so, I was, when we were preparing for this, I was thinking, wow, that's something we'd all want to be investing in in the next two years. There's a bit of warehousing, really, isn't it? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I, I, and I think one of the scary things is, you know, we, we sit down with our clients, we go through the supply chain and the various components and, you know, every major element within that supply chain um, from a cost perspective has gone up. Mm. And at the end of it if, it, if it relates to a sale to a consumer, you've then got to make a decision, how much of that do I pass on? I think the classic for me was um, a, a colleague has a business where they import out of India for the summer season selling sporting goods. 40-foot um, container used to be 5,000 out of, out of India. It's now 25,000. You know, so a five-fold <laughs> five increase. You know, five-fold increase. Yeah. You know, and then suddenly does that sporting good, you know, can it sustain a 10, 15% price increase? And I guess it also has an impact on the calculation of where traditionally we've been offshore and because it has been cheaper, we've been able to get product reliably to come through. Is it going to shift the marketplace where people are focusing more onshore? Does it change the cost model? Oh, this is, um, <laughs> I'll come back to you, Amanda. Yeah, look, uh, and, and that was a, a very strong discussion around COVID in terms of you know, um, inbound personal protective equipment and that we were solely reliant on China as a supplier. Um, and there was, you know, a, a lot of commentary around we should now start manufacturing locally, everything. We're a small nation, you know, of 26 million people. You know, we, we can't make everything. Mm. You know, and I don't think the Australian consumer is prepared, to, you know, prepared to pay a significantly higher cost for, a, for an article that we can get from you know, from China or from Malaysia or from Indonesia or for, from Taiwan, um, you know, th that cross-border trade <clears throat> will always continue, will always be there. So I think it's incredulous that we have some commentators saying we should now, you know, close our borders and start making everything ourselves. We just can't do it. We're such a small market, mm. you know, it's 26 really million point. people. Amanda, you were going to jump in there on that one too. I think it's... Yeah, we have some um, large furniture importers that actually looked at the, you know, the rising costs, you mm. know, let's start manufacturing here. And they found that even with the rising cost of the freight rates being as high as what they were on the high end, it was still worth it for them to import the goods into the, into the country, not mm. manufacture it here. Mm. The manufacturing cost is way too high. Mm. Yeah. I've had I've had many discussions as well when you know I've had um, 
I've been joking with some of my colleagues that it's been really easy when I'm dealing with insurance salvage because people are so desperate to keep importing goods mm. because the costs to manufacture, as you say, are still going to be higher than ultimately what you would get. But they're more prepared at the moment to deal with damage themselves and sort of like I had a um, steel tube importer where they had some rusted steel in circumstances where otherwise they would say, no, we don't want it, you can sort it out, you know, get your salvage guys in. They're saying, we've been waiting for this we've stock got a, for 14 Santa, we're months. ready. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. You know, we, we, we can remediate it ourselves. For, makes my job a lot easier because I don't have to go sourcing other buyers. Mm. Um, but, you know, I had another importer of, of car parts. Well, we don't readily make... You know, as you said, Daryl, there's stuff that we don't make anymore. Yeah. And, uh, or, or never have. And these guys had waited 14 months for a container that incidentally got stuck in a warehouse in Singapore, which caught fire during transshipment and half their stock was burned. So, and it's just people not thinking in their lifetime, you know, it's like, oh, it's a one in a million shop. Well, you're going to be the one in a million yeah. that gets affected. Um by that but it's it's so much about education and that's what and education awareness I think that's what it sort of comes down to everyone education. thinks that it's not it's it's not going to happen to them but these unprecedented incidences are coming around more and more often and people are going what well, this is <laughs> no they're not nothing that surprises us anymore and in I the supply chain Amanda, having been in the industry for such a long time, yeah. the creative problem solving, I imagine, yeah. <laughs> that has to be done on a daily basis to yeah. try and solve problems like, yeah, the, it's stuck in a somewhere. Or, yep. I hear everyone now is an expert in watching their ships track around the world. <laughs> uh, the marine traffic website is, is blowing up right now, I do think, yeah, for sure. I think everyone's watching their ships, which is a great thing. I think for mm. us as freight forwarders, it's, it's great when the clients are actually wanting to do that and actually track their ships. But what they need to know is that, yes, there's always, there's ways around a lot of things. So we're being creative in changing ports of loading. So obviously there's issues in China at the moment, so we're changing ports of loading for that. Um, ports of discharge as well. So unfortunately for us, Fremantle lies in a, in a bit of a strange location and everything for Fremantle comes via Singapore or via Port Kalang for us. Mm -hmm. But for the East Coast, they have direct ships into out of China, direct into East Coast. Um, so some clients are actually trucking cargo from east to west in order to make, you know, uh, connections. Singapore itself is being uh, inundated with cargo, so they're not just the transshipment hub for Fremantle, they're the transshipment hub for the entire world. Mm. So they're inundated with 115% uh, more capacity. They've got so much cargo sitting there. And obviously for Fremantle, such a minor part of the market. Mm. So our transshipments are taking a lot longer. Some shipping lines are six to eight weeks of cargo sitting idle in Singapore. Whereas into the east coast, it's obviously a little bit quicker for them. And if it's to go food all the time. or fresh produce Correct. sitting there, yep. then you're dealing with soiling issues and all yep, of those. Exactly other right. So you know the reefer containers, they won't always take priority. They should, but they don't always. And of course, they're sitting plugged in on the terminal in Singapore, or not plugged in. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's obviously issues through there. But Fremantle being in such a unique spot of the world, we have to deal with those transshipment issues through Singapore. Which and Amanda, problem. I'm just curious, I was just thinking, you know, just as we're talking, it is such a minefield and so many of our smaller businesses, as Dara was saying, you know, retailers, cycling producers, our electricians, our, you know, local builders aren't used to navigating these sorts of relationships. From an import and an export point of view, what would your recommendations be around how a provider like yourself, where do you get involved? Is it from the infantry and those beginning relationships yeah. right through? How does it Yeah, work? we like to get involved at the order stage. So if they're placing the orders with China, if they're placing the orders here, obviously they've got an order here for export. We like to be involved at that point because at that point you can start to see where things might go a little bit sideways. So, you know, bookings out of Fremantle at the moment for exports, you need to be booking a vessel at least a month in advance. Uh, for most major trade lanes, um, we're look, looking at th from from Singapore, sorry, from Fremantle to Singapore. That's not so bad, but it's the congestion from Singapore out to where they're, they're shipping to. And obviously with the import wise as well, we're looking at booking at least a month in advance for those as well. Mm. Yeah. Daryl. Um, and that's a really, really um, great way that a freight forwarder would um, outline when they get involved. Yes. Um, and obviously they like to get involved as early as possible. But if it's on an order out of China, from a business perspective, my discussion will be different. 
Yeah. Are they going, all right, what's your product? What, what do you want to import? Um, you know, you, you're talking to one supplier in China. My advice would be you need to talk to multiple suppliers and not so just So we're not in, just ringing up our year 12 girlfriend. We're actually multiply dating Yeah, you might go back to your little black book and go, well, actually, I had three <laughs> other girls that I used to, you know, I, I like but I never spoke to. Yes, yes. Well, like really, it's n- now what, what's happening is you can't solely rely on a single supplier. You know, you really need to go and explore. Or a single market. That's the reality, yeah, isn't that, it? That was the next step. So you yeah. might go, right, I'm going to get place an order with a single supplier in China. Yeah. When really if you still want to, you know, deal with China, it's a great market to deal with, maybe I need to identify two to three potential suppliers and get the competitive juices flowing around pricing. Then when I'm going to my freight forward, I've got three potential suppliers. You know, how does that impact, you know, logistically mm-hmm. the cost that I might incur? Um, dealing with those potential suppliers. Yeah. The next more sophisticated step is to go, well, actually, that article, I'm pretty sure, because I've spoken to Austrade, or I've, you know, or I've, I've made some you know, um, connections overseas, might be made in Indonesia or it might be made in Johor Bahru, you know, in Malaysia. So there are some potential other um, suppliers from other countries, mm. not just China. And we're seeing that in packaging, aren't we? I mean, green packaging coming out of Indonesia at the moment is really strong and a lot of people just aren't aware that Indonesia is one of the biggest manufacturers of packaging in the world. No, that's right. So, um, you know, the federal government talked about the need to pivot through COVID, you know, and they looked at the wine industry and said, you need to pivot. You know, yes, we've lost our China market overnight, um, but I remember seeing an article uh, from an Adelaide-based wine producer. It took them 10 months to pivot. You know, so domestically they, they were flogging their products locally um, and now they've established some new markets outside of China. But it took them 10 months, mm. you know, so – and that's a sophisticated exporter. exporter. And as you said, decision-making processes, and particularly in larger organisations, they take time. There's also a whole lot of other additional potential costs involved. I know some of our seafood exporters, for example, pivoted to knowing that getting fresh product to market was going to be such an issue to a little bit more of the manufactured product. I think our, you know, octopus worked, Fremantle Octopus did an amazing job of converting to some, you know, really beautiful marinated octopus that's now distributed through supermarkets across Australia. Um, I'm noticing tuna's doing similar things. I think lobster's looking a little bit more at, at how do you get a longer shelf life through some different alternatives. Yeah, but they're long-term decisions for businesses. Well, they were. They? And, you know, if you look at the crayfishmen, I mean, they, they did pivot pretty quickly to Hong Kong. Mm. And we're now seeing huge tonnages going into Hong Kong. And between the four of us, surely it's not all being eaten by <laughs> Hong Kong people. No, it's we're seeing be moving, the same in Vietnam. You know, yeah. and, but, you know, having said that, um, how long is that going to last? Because the Chinese could stop that overnight. Yeah. Um, in my understanding, they've only really disrupted two to three shipments and all the rest continue to allow it to be imported into Hong Kong and move potentially into mainland China. It is. I mean, we obviously through our export documentation at the Chamber see that pretty well at the, very quickly, um, what's going where. And we are seeing different routes coming through into China for seafood and lobster in particular. They are finding ways in. But, it, again, it's a high-risk strategy because it is going against some, you know, I guess key processes that have been put in place by the Chinese government. So, again, it's about managing that risk, isn't it, mm. and how you take it from there. Um We've talked a lot about, you know, that return from just in time to, to or I guess, to just in case. Um, and we have talked about the cost of managing and warehousing and moving these different options around. Cost-wise, where are we sitting? I mean, how much of that's being pushed onto the consumer, do you think, and how far have we got to go before we're really seeing a hike in some of that. I think a lot of organisations are like, this is short term, we're just going to try and manage it now. Where's it going? Does anyone want to take that one? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It will definitely translate into cost of living increases, Mm -hmm. without doubt. I mean, you know, importers can't sustain like a fivefold, tenfold increase in logistical costs and not pass that on in some way, shape or form. Um, and then we're also dealing with, uh, you know, an exchange rate. So US dollars at, you know, 70 cents. So from an import perspective, that adds 
you know, more cost. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I mean, businesses' profitability um, is a major concern at present, you know, because mm. their current margins are being squeezed, you know, at various components of the supply chain um, and that will have to be passed on to the end consumer. Now, from a housing construction point of view, we're seeing that already. Mm. Um, you know, so those those costs of new constructions, pardon the pun, gone through the roof. Mm. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we're already seeing it in various industry sectors. and I think it's going to become uniformed across every industry sector that costs are going to go up. And is there anything from, a, I guess, a fiscal or a government policy perspective that can be done, do you think, Amanda, at the front end? Is there anything that you think could make a change in what you're saying? In relation to the shipping costs, the freight costs, no, they're not. They're not governed by any government in that way. It's just a supply and demand. So if you need a spot on a vessel, like you were saying about shipment out of India, then you're, some people are willing to pay whatever it takes to get their cargo on board the vessel. So government stepping in on that side, um, not so much. I know that the government was looking at a few different uh, land side issues for terminals that are increasing their charges um, exponentially. So I think that's that's something they can do, but we're talking a couple of hundred dollars mm. versus the thousands of dollars that they're paying for, for the you know space on the blue water for sure. The, yeah. uh, this is not going away anytime soon and no government intervention is going to help in that regard. But it comes down again to education and being aware of your costs. A lot of people mm -hmm. are importing and not knowing the costs that are going to be hitting them when the cargo gets here. Um, I think that's a big thing that we're seeing is the not so much the ignorance but more than unknown. People just don't know and they're not taking the steps to make sure that they're aware of, of the issues that are going to happen on the way mm. and the charges that they'll be charged, you know, by the car cargo gets here. And, and I mean, we've got a we've got a battle at the moment with insurers because freight rates have exponentially got. You know, you, you're I'm seeing costs come in for claims now where the sea freight cost is what I would expect to see for an air freight cost two or three years ago. Mm. And I think I had an air freight shipment where the freight was like seventy five thousand dollars, and it's just you you try and battle that as a surveyor with an insurer, and they go that's outrageous, and it's like well, that's. Mm. what it is and it is so much about education but you know the the particularly ports and terminals and stevedores not to get too political but they the stevedores know and they can they can milk it you know the amount of time we have argument over you know arbitrary charges or surcharges for this that and everything else which for an importer especially or an exporter generally aren't covered by insurance mm. and so they have that you know that it's an inevitable that you know, importers and exporters are going to be caught with out-of-pocket costs. I pity freight forwarders whose margins before all of this were already really tight and it's just, a, you know, it's it, the knock-on effect it's is huge the because they through. also have to, you know, disperse those costs. Mm. So. And so we're, we're looking at understanding the costs from start to finish and where the potential issues may crop up. We're knowing these cost increases are going to be longer term. I'd love to come back to talk about air freight and just see if they, anything's changing now that people are actually able to move around the world a little bit more. Um, but also that relationships, the planning, it really is in an instant almost, as Daryl said, you know, what happened in January is not happening in May. So it's going through all of those processes all the time, isn't it? Uh, it, it is. And I, I think the interesting uh, point in the last year or two has been the discussions with clients around, yes, you want to trade. Um, yes, you want to undertake cross-border trade. On what terms? Mm. And they go, oh, what do you mean? Well, which inco term are you going to be trading on? Mm. And you'll have this blank look at you and you go, because depending on the inco term you pick will determine the risk for the site seller and the buyer. Mm. So, you know, the, the easiest one is X-Works. So you're selling from a factory in Malaga. The buyer picks it up. They do all the inland tra transport down to Fremantle. They get it on the ship. It sails. It comes at the other port. They clear it. They pay for the inland freight and they take it to their factory. So all that risk is with the buyer, you know, minimal for the seller. Um, and on occasions you'll go, oh, no, no, I'll, I'll sell, I'll, I'll get it into the other country. You know, and then the buyer will take it up from there. Um, so I've certainly been involved in a number of disputes for clients um, around which inco term, and they weren't aware of the risk and responsibility of around that inco term. Correct. Yeah. So on that supply chain now, 
you know, given that logistics are such a critical element and an expensive element, do you, as an exporter, want to take on that risk? Mm. Should you be looking at another inco term which passes that risk earlier to the buyer? Yeah. You know, and that, that can dramatically change your business fundamentals, your financials, straight away. Because if you're taking, if you're not having to organise the shipping, someone still has to, but it's not you, it's the buyer. Mm. You know, so suddenly if that vessel goes from Fremantle um, and your cargo eventually sits off Shanghai for three weeks, problem doesn't belong to you. Mm. You know, it's the buyer because of the inco term that you set up. So I think um, having that, that really frank discussion around where do you want to sit on that supply chain around the yeah. responsibility and, and the risk. And where are your risks and opportunities as Correct. well in that And that might chain. be having a, a more mature discussion with your buyer, mm. saying, look, you know, you're a big company. Surely you can get a better freight rate than I can. I'm only sending you one container, you know, a week and you're buying globally from everybody. How about you taking on, you some know, of that risk. some of that risk? Mm. Mm. Um, Interesting. So that's really having that frank discussion, you know, around, you know, isn't it worth your benefit? You want our product, you pick it up. Mm. You know, so I can certainly see that should be occur- that kind of discussion should be occurring a lot more than um, what it has been in the you know the last five or ten years. And it's really interesting as you talk. I keep thinking about just markets in general and how much I think, particularly within Australia, we're so used to our markets being relatively regulated in some way or form and. You know, what we're talking about with trade, it really is every essence in many ways of a free market. We're dealing with supply and demand. We're dealing with where does risk lie. We're dealing with where you actually place, who has the greatest need for getting something to and fro and and where the costs are actually going to come along that chain. Um, So from a risk management perspective, and Karen, you raised that, you know, people should be paying more for containers and doing things. Should companies be absorbing these costs? I mean, or how does it actually work on that free market level? Because are we going to see those who are managing risk better, not needing to raise their costs as much, and maybe those that aren't raising their costs because they're not coping with the process and potentially falling out the other side? That's a really challenging question because obviously the the dollar's going to kick and you're going to get a kickoff from customers who will just say, well, I'll go elsewhere. And you, mm-hmm. you'll say, well... Yeah, you could be really coy about it and go, well, do your worst because it's going to be the same wherever you go. So, you know, you're just best off coming here anyway. But I guess from my risk point of view is I see, um, you know, the, the disparity between how things, how commodities might be packed relative to where they're coming from is off the charts. You know, I have some relative comfort if stuff's coming out of Europe because they really pay attention to getting that right. And there's enough education, particularly in the Europe marine market and the marine risk market, there's a lot of education on managing your risk. And I know because, you know, I've been asked to sort of guide that with some of our colleagues in the Netherlands about, you know, we've got an entire insurance broker market who want to know and be able to inform their clients about the risks involved in international shipping. But you know, one of the, I think one of the questions you had there was, well, do we talk about scattering across China and Vietnam and India? I think you're going to have the same problem wherever you go. Mm. And that is if you're not doing your due diligence with your supplier and don't take the assumption that your supplier in China is actually the one that's packing your freight for shipping, because invariably you have an import or an export, you're dealing with an import or an export trader, but it's actually going somewhere else. And about Eight years ago, I had some high-voltage um, mobile um, generators, which were basically put into a shipping container, and only and they were on caster wheels with none of the brakes engaged, and they were literally only held inside the container with one strand of fishing uh, of fencing wire going through the top, and then this um, data centre that imported these um, banks said. Well, we're trying to understand how three of these units have fallen over in the container during a voyage. And so, well, if you've only got a dangly piece of yeah. fencing wire and the brakes on the casters unengaged, what do you expect? It's moving cargo. And so, but it would have been a simple, back in the day, you would have gone to China and said, we want it packed like this and this is what you have to do. A bit more challenging in COVID, mm. but basically saying to your supplier, this is what you need to do, sending them 
a layout saying you need this to pack it like this. Packed, yeah. This is how we have to do it. And by the way, we're happy to pay you $2,500 to get it right because then if you don't, you know, if it's insufficiently packed in a lot of instances, that's not covered by insurance either. And also you can't just pick up the phone if it arrived like you used to and potentially get another one because it's going to take months that's and months right. for it to come. Um, Amanda, just um, a quick question just on um, some of the specific industries that I'd be really keen to hear from you on what you're seeing. So um, property we talked about and construction and getting importing steel and materials has yeah. been a massive issue. Huge problem. Huge problem for timber also. Yeah. So we're seeing that's obviously a big problem. Um, look, we work a lot with retailers. Uh, they're obviously having a lot of trouble trying to get their product in. Furniture, we're talking all, all walks of, mm. of life. Um, even the oil and gas industry, uh, they struggle as well. So anyone that's importing anything and anyone that's exporting anything is having the same trouble. So we talk about costs. The costs are the same across the board for everybody. No one's getting away with this. So we talk about, you know, what do we do? Do we put the prices up? Yes, that's yeah. the only way out of this because it's not going anywhere anytime soon. And as you mentioned, and be prepared to yes. look at really alternative solutions. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the having the backups, as yeah. um, Daryl mentioned, different relationships, different suppliers, yeah. Yeah. Um, managing and making sure that you can trust your partners at every, from the guy packing your container right through. Yeah. Um, and also I think one of the other areas that we talked about that um, strikes me as being really important in this conversation is also making sure that the things that you can control, you have. So whether it's your inco terms, whether it's making sure the documents that we stamp at the chamber, that you've got really good documents in place, that there's nothing else along the way that can hold you yeah. up. Would that be fair? Yeah, there's all the checks and balances that you can do as an importer or an exporter mm -hmm. and then it goes out to the, the land of the shipping gods and what will happen will happen. So yeah. we said before, it is what it is. And that's sort of what we've adopted along the way of the shipping. We can't control the vessels and, and them sitting outside of port for days on end waiting for berths because there's no workers at the terminals. We can't control any of the congestion issues. We can't control the fact that the container shortages are happening more and more often at different ports for different reasons. Um, yes, yeah, so the things you can control, you need to be in control of. Yeah, Absolutely. I think it's also an awareness of where to find help. Mm. So um, as a marine survivor, a lot of people don't know that we're involved on both ends of the chain. Mm. And we can, you know, we at Crawford, we've got a global network of surveyors. So there's always people that can help at each stage of the process. Yeah. And knowing, you know, what help you need and where to go to get it. It's, yeah, it's what you can control to control what you can't. Absolutely. Now, I'm conscious I have been monopolising some of the time here because the conversation is so very interesting. We do have a few people in the room and a few people online. Any questions coming through online, Kel? Any questions from our panel today? Or shall I just keep firing along? Uh, if you've got one, Rob, it looks like you might. Kelly's got a mic or we'll pass the mic to you. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, guys. Uh, Rob DiCarlo from Westpac. You touched on the air freight um, mm. aspect, which I'm pretty keen to understand. I think, Daryl, you're across that space, so keen to uh, see what the dynamics look like from an air freight point of view. That's great. Is it cheaper for us just to put things on a plane now that people are moving, Daryl? Oh. <laughs> well, um, this is not good news either. So from an air freight perspective, um, it was probably a couple of months ago now, but... I saw a, a logistic solution um, using air freight versus sea freight. And at that point in time, the air freight was cheaper than sea freight. And that's never happened in my 35 years of working in international trade where air freight – and it was expensive, right? Um, and, but yeah, I, I've never seen that before. So that was, that was phenomenal. The next thing is um, – and I'm – you know, presentations over the last year or two around air freight. Pre-COVID, you know, a dollar to two dollars a kilo around there. Uh, through this current period, six to nine dollars a kilo. Um, and that's a subsidised price mm. under IFAM, yeah. International Freight Assistance Mechanism. I mean, that is scary to think, you know. And then other scary things is you look on LinkedIn and IFAM will put up the flights that are available that week and it's on a single A4 page. It's like, you are joking. Mm. You know, that's it. So, you know, and IFAM is supporting certainly those larger exporters that have got mature contracts are getting their stuff on planes, yeah. no doubt. Um, and you made the comment about borders are open now. Shouldn't we have more capacity? 
Well, what actually happened in the, that first month or two was that those planes that were coming down previously had cargo in the cabins as well as in the, in the belly. Yeah. Um, once we enabled passengers to fly, you can't have cargo and passengers in the cabin. They don't mix. So suddenly you had, yeah. you had a reduction in freight capacity mm. early on. Um, and then if you think about Perth, if we think about our little, our little market, most of the planes that come to Perth, um, so between here and Bali and other, other parts of Asia, low-cost carriers. They don't take cargo. Yeah, we've really only got two major suppliers. And that's why I found we lobbied so hard for that at the beginning of COVID was there are so few airlines that actually manage getting our goods to market Correct. that we need to support those airlines Correct. to keep it going. So IFAM, you know, wraps up in effectively June with some of the last flights in July and that's it for support for exporters or, exporters and importers that want to use air freight. Um, our um, brothers and sisters... Um, across the ditch in New Zealand. They've got a very similar program. They've extended that now until the end of 2023. Okay. So they look at it as being um, a particular program that needs to have long-term support. Um, we're stopping ours in, in June. Mm. So, um, look, air freight is still... And with the pantomime of a federal election coming in as well, we're not with caretaker mode. We won't see, even if they were to revise that, we're not going to see those decisions made. So. Oh, correct. And change of government, mm. you know, if Labor do get in, there'll be a new budget, but it won't be till October. Mm. You know, but uh, I mean, most of the leading commentators are saying that air freight is still going to be a problem for the next 12, 18, 24 months. Amanda, do you want to just comment on what you're seeing from an air freight versus ship? shipping point of view because yeah. it is a big question for our importers and exporters. Definitely. I mean, air, air freight, both import and export, we are definitely disadvantaged here in Perth. Um, we find that a lot of the import cargo will come in by the eastern states and then be trucked across um, with no visibility at all. So most of the airlines' major tracking systems don't actually allow for the transport leg on the domestic side. Um, so the cargo turns up when the cargo turns up. It's basically, if it's not the depot today, it might be tomorrow or it might be the next day. So it's quite alarming to know that you don't actually know where your cargo is when mm. it's crossing the Malibor, but that happens more and more. It's in transit, exactly transit, right. Yeah. So we're finding that obviously the transit takes longer. We've had obvious a lot of problems with COVID. Um, you know, depots over the East Coast have went down in succession. You know, whole teams were down and they couldn't move freight quick enough. So for, for, for Perth, definitely a disadvantage for moving cargo both east and west. Yeah. Um, obviously, freighters uh, issue coming into Perth because there is none, so we have to truck everything um, to the, the east coast. And obviously, the lost capacity with the Antonov being annihilated in the Ukraine, which was devastating for, for a lot of people, including myself. It was the, one of the largest you know, planes in the world that carried freight, and that's now um, lost as well. So there's a lot of problems with the air freight. Air freight's still moving, though. Um, you do find that there is obviously those pinch points uh, where the cargo transits fire. We had a lot of issues with cargo being bumped off for the vaccines coming in, mm. um, which a lot of people don't think about, but the vaccines have to come in some way and they come in via air freight. So if your cargo of, uh, you know, work shirts are coming in, well, you're going to get bumped for the vaccine yeah. um, and that's just something we have to deal with. So rats as well um, coming across. We, have, we were talking before about the rail line going down, the east to west rail line, which caused major disruptions and obviously um, you want to talk more about those ones? Yeah, so um, right in the thick of it at the moment had, well, had opportunities but sensitive goods and so, and again it comes to people not really thinking about the conditions their goods are going to be faced in. Um, I had a whole lot of cosmetics and sunscreens go in rail containers en route, rail washes out, literally gets stuck in Port Augusta in 40 degrees and by the time, you know, it's stuck there for four weeks gets here I'm looking at it and you can see all, all of the chemical properties have separated and you can't take that stuff to market anymore and at the moment you know I have two container loads of of rat kits and these are rat kits for like mining companies and businesses who need to have huge supplies in order to deal with the daily requirements for their teams and once they don't they might not look damaged but they've got storage properties that say they need to be maintained between 5 and 25 degrees celsius they've got a, a limit in terms of a time period with which they can deviate from that mm. and you can be guaranteed that if it's 40 degrees outside it's at least 50 to 60 degrees inside a container if you've got no 
temperature control mechanisms or no insulating properties with how that cargo is packed, you can't use it. It's no longer reliable. And mm. so then you've got two containers of, you know, potentially a million rat kits, which just basically go in the bin. It's terrifying, isn't it? And you just think about how many, you know, I was thinking about how many of our cheese, you know, importers have gone under in the last few years, how many of our other perishable products, you know, and you do, you think about sunscreen, makeups, all of those things. It, it must be a very challenging, challenging. I don't envy any of you, um, I think, in this, in this business. And I think, Amanda, I loved your comment that it is what it is. And maybe the learning in all of these processes for business is that we have to be fast, we have to be nimble. But we also have to lower our expectations <laughs> in terms of, you know, the way business used to run. It just isn't going to be like that, is it? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's all about flexibility as well. We can't compare the way that we're dealing with um, business today to what we were dealing with in 2019. You know, we're talking you know, after the pandemic and everything, This everything's changed. So shipping lines predominantly are only issuing their freight rates now for every two weeks. Now, there's a big reason for this because they don't know what's going to happen either. Yeah. So if we're looking at those as a model, then we're talking, you know, something you were talking about in January perhaps, it's not going to be the same anymore. Just mm. things are not the same and I think that people need to realise that everything's changed um, and, and we need to adapt to that. There needs to be some flexibility and adaptation Absolutely. to that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I deal with risk all the time. My mantra for everything that I do, I always expect the unexpected but – my mantra, which would probably pay true to people who are dealing with the supply chain, is the ABCs of supply chain, which is A, accept nothing, B, believe no one, and C, check everything. You I can't love go that. wrong. <laughs> My final wind up question was going to be a piece of advice to leave people. I think we should repeat those ABCs <laughs> again, Karen. So it's what? Accept nothing. A is accept nothing. Yeah. B, believe no one. Okay. And C, check everything. Every field visit I do, that's where how I go in. I love it. Amanda, what's your parting early, piece of advice? Early ordering. Yeah. Early ordering and being flexible with your delivery times. So if you're expecting a terminal to work 24-7, guess what? You need to be working 24-7 too. So you can you should be flexible with your nighttime deliveries. Trucks are running obviously better at night. Um, you know, yes, you're not going to get your container at 7 a.m. because everyone wants their container at 7 a.m. Perhaps if you can open up at night and we can drop your container off, it's no problem. So being flexible with that and allowing for those issues that are happening with the supply chain, making sure you manage your orders to ensure that you're not putting much pressure on the supply chain because it's not going to move any faster than what it is currently. It's really, really yeah. good advice. Yeah. yeah. And I like the idea of even shifting your own workforce and your own planning to actually accommodate some of the global trends that we're seeing. Daryl, some last advice. I'll add D&E. Oh, so gosh. I was just thinking then. So out with my ABC. <coughs> We've yeah, just missed yeah, yeah. D, haven't we, somewhere no, along no, the line? No, no, ABC was great. <laughs> D, like, you know, diversify mm -hmm. and E, educate. Mm -hmm. So just some of the points that have been made, like I don't think Australians realise that we're a really small market in the global scheme of things. And we are globally connected. Mm. But our market is very small. We have no great uh, buying power, no great ability to influence. You know, we don't have a Star Trek world where there is an overarching authority that will go, you will move those empty containers from point A to point B to help point B. You know, it just doesn't happen. Mm. Um, you know, we are competing with, with other major markets and trade routes that are much more profitable for the shipping companies. So China, US, you know, $40,000 for a 40-footer to move from China to the US and they're paying it. And the shipping companies are taking it and putting on vessels, notwithstanding they, they get stuck on the West Coast or the East Coast. So I think just educating yourself to understand, you know, the world that we now operate in and you've got to manage your expectations. So it's that education piece. I mean, a lot of the stuff that, you know, I talk about publicly is it's really just an education piece that, you mm. know, what are the rates? Were they bloody horrible? Are they going to be getting better? Probably not mm. and not quickly. What can I do about it? Well, you need to start thinking about it and planning. And then thinking about Australia, as you said, as a small market, we have to think like a niche player too, don't we? We have to go, well, what's our point of difference? Why would a buyer want to get to me as a, you know, a purchaser of something I've got to be able to offer something in this marketplace to those or group together with other businesses so that we have a better offering and again that creativity of solutions the whole way along. 
You know, and we, we certainly do either grow or dig up, you know, some unique products that are needed, you know, around the world. Yeah, it's a shame we can't all just throw, you know, our product on a bulk carrier and send it around the world. We'd be fine, wouldn't we? Oh, you might have, yeah. <laughs> we don't have time for that one. Let's not go there today. Oh, I think, as um, Daryl said when we were preparing for this, we could keep talking on this topic for so long and it is such a scary issue for so many businesses, large and small. I mean, the quote that I started with from the Institute Company Directors is showing that, you know, everyone from West Farmers to Rebel Sports right through to a small retailer is feeling this pain. Um, perishable products, property products, the 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 things that we need to actually go into the rest of our production process are probably the ones feeling it even more because they literally can't move to the next step of their business as well unless we can get some of those products in or out. So, um, yeah, let's hope um, with fingers and toes crossed that maybe if we gather again in a 12 months' time we may have a slightly better story for people. For, but certainly from what I'm hearing, we have to be ready for it not to be and we have to be really thinking about a completely new way of doing business. So thank you all very, very much. To those who have joined us in the room, thank you. Um, to those of you enjoying a coffee and pyjamas and who forgot to come in this morning, um, we hope you've enjoyed listening from home. Chris, thanks always um, for making sure that our viewers and listeners can hear us um, as well and as clearly as they can. Um, let's stop for a coffee and a croissant. And I'm off to Fremantle Ports now to discuss Victoria Key. So it'll be interesting to hear that perspective as well. Thanks again, everyone.